Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest episode of Opening Up Chaplaincy. And you can contact us at openupchap at gmail.com. I'm Stig Graham, hospice and palliative care chaplain and Anglican priest. And I'm joined, first of all, this morning by my delightful colleague. Uh, hi, hi, I'm Joe Mutlow, and I'm a humanist, pastoral carer working in Bradford. And we're really delighted today to have a, a volunteer who came from forward, Josh Turner, um, to be a guest on our programme some time ago, I think, Josh, but we finally slotted you in. And Josh works in mental health for the Hertfordshire Partnership Mental Health Trust. And we're very glad to have you um, and have a focus, I think, on mental health today, Josh. That would be very helpful to a lot of people. So welcome. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm extremely glad to be here. And um <laughs> Glad and, and somewhat about... surprised, we should say, when you looked in your diary this morning. Well, quite. Yes, no, um, I'm, Stig sent me, kindly sent me a, a reminder last Friday, but I don't work on Fridays yeah. for the trust. So um, you say when I uh, when I saw it this morning, I was confused. I should have looked at it on Saturday, really. but um, <laughs> No uh... problem at all. No problem. <laughs> so tell us a little bit, Josh, about, uh, about your job and how you came to be in chaplaincy. How I came to be. Yes. Well, isn't that the question we all ask ourselves? Um, absolutely. That's, you know, a large question for chaplaincy in general. But um, how I came to be in chaplaincy is, is more specific, I suppose. Um, well, I, I was an actor. I was and and theatre director for 30 years of my life. Um, and uh, as as I'm sure you did, Joe, you followed the um, followed, followed court cases with interest, which would allow people who weren't religious to become chaplains to do spiritual mm. care. And um, and I, I I saw that this was going on and I jokingly said to my partner, well, when there's a course for non-religious people to be chaplains I'm going to take it because wouldn't it be great if I could do sort of weddings and funerals and um, have the odd day um, in my local hospital or something to make ends meet when I don't have a show to do or when people don't want me to do voiceovers or whatever and um, and so I did uh, um, there was the course at the new school of psychotherapy and counseling in existential and humanist pastoral and spiritual care which I which I signed up immediately for. I think I was the first person to sign up for it. And then um, in the first cohort um, with, uh, among other people, Louis Saba, who worked at um, Leicester, I think. Um, and, uh, and and yeah, so that's how, I, that's how I got into it, thinking I would do, you know, do, do it part time, uh, do bank work at Luton and Dunstable, which is near where I live, uh, which I then did. Um, I worked, um, I did, work experience in the um in the local hospital and Keach Hospice, which is in Luton as well, um, and with the police and the fire service and at Woodhill Prison. I tried to do as much work experience as I could in all sorts of different areas because um, you know, just wanting to wanted to immerse myself in a new world really. Um and then when I qualified or as I qualified, I um I was lucky enough that um Mia Kite Hilborn, who's the hospitaler at Guys and Thomas's, uh, saw fit to to offer me a job. Um, obviously, I I, I applied for it, um, and and so I I started there. I started at um, for a while. I was doing uh, half a day at Guys and Thomas's, and which was which was marvelous, and it was a really good experience, of course. 
But then the pandemic started and um, where I had been doing half a day, suddenly they rang me up and said, well, could you do some more days? And I said, how many? And they said, well, another four and a half, maybe to add to your, <laughs> what, half a day, <laughs> effectively, um, you know, because because as as we all experienced at that point, the there were no volunteers allowed into the hospitals. Mm. And so spiritual care was uh, the, you know, the chaplaincy department was 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 completely understaffed um so suddenly I was um and and the theatres were closed of course so I had nothing else to do so I said yeah fine and then um about six months after that I saw this advertisement for two-day um mental health chaplain in the trust I now work for um and again I was extremely lucky that uh, Richard Allen who was the um lead chaplain at that point decided to take a punt on me um so I suddenly was a mental health chaplain as well on um, well, the experience, I guess, of um, looking after my cousin, who's learning disabled for a, a while and things like that, um, you know, and I won't be a Samaritan's listener, but um, not that that has, you know, that I think that had some bearing um, on mental health chaplaincy. Um, and then and then I ended up kind of gradually getting more days with the mental health trust because I I I um I kind of got into the work and as things um, slowed down a bit at um, Guys and Thomas's, I ended up pretty much full time here, four days a week. Um, I still work one day at the Royal Academy of Music um, as a teaching. I'm, I'm not that musical. I teach on the acting course. I teach improvisation to them every Friday. I was there last Friday, which is why I didn't get your email. And um, and uh, yeah, so so I'm still keeping that side of my life alive. I do the odd voiceover. I do the odd improvised show, too. Um, but um, as of sort of a few months ago, um, with Richard retiring, I then suddenly um, thought, well, I should apply for that job. And now I'm um, the lead here um, at um, HPFT. So that, that's a pretty amazing story, I think, yeah. compared yeah. to other people's roots into chaplaincy, which tend to be uh about a calling or about extending their uh pastoral role or their caring role or or applying their theology to a, a practice yeah, setting yeah. you know it's a very different route well my and mother really always thought interesting... i should be a priest you know she was disappointed when i decided i wasn't <laughs> um she thought the priesthood might be safe for me i think she was a roman catholic for um, most right. of her life um but uh but yeah um so but I guess you know I I referred <laughs> um, satirically referred to myself when I was qualifying to do the work as um, they were saying what are you going to be a vicar now my friends so were saying to me and I was like no 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 this is I guess if, you, if I'm going to be any kind of vicar I'm going to be a vicar of supposing rather than a vicar of belief um, because because I'm uh, um, I'm about as wishy-washy agnostic as you can get really yeah but that makes you perfect for the Anglican Church to be honest that's what most Anglicans tell me you're yeah, right yeah absolutely yes, yes they'll absolutely. Go, well I'm just the same as that it's just social <laughs> you know I've had I've had um, I've had kind of culturally Jewish people saying the same thing to me actually yeah 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 uh, but yeah no, I would say I would say I, I take <laughs> I take that um, sense of inquiry yeah, into the work exactly. that I do um uh, and you know I was struck when I started the training um having mainly having done an awful lot of improvised theater and improvised comedy actually as well um in my in my theatrical life you know that so much of so much of the work that I do with particularly you know with 
with people in our in our trust is um is exactly that it's yeah, it's just yeah. being open and holding a safe space and saying yes and to people all those all those skills that i have from improvisation i um you know when you're talking to somebody one of the one of the people in one of our older people's units for example you know um conversations can go anywhere and they can yeah. change at a, on a second and you just need yeah, to follow it yeah. you need to chase the butterfly of sense around the garden with this person and um and so when i you know i just i'm i'm aware of of that whole idea that that you are creating that world with someone they're taking a lead yes. of course but 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 you are just following them and and holding a space and and i hope following them with a sense of inquiry and 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 allowing them to be you know i lo- i just i just love that comparison with improvisation you know yes. the fact that you're holding yes potential space you don't know what's going to come into that space but you're going in with the spirit of this is potential here Mm. this could go in any direction I've got to react I've got to wait and see I've got to adjust what I do in response yeah and all that sort of flexibility that intuition and that adaptability is entirely relevant for the skills of a pastoral carer yeah yeah absolutely and and you know turning off your your sense of judgment because you, if you do that when you're improvising and actually we talk in improvisation we talk about the watcher or the director and people it'll often be the voice of the parent or or the teacher or someone saying no 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 don't do that that's just stupid and that, and that kind of gets in the way it takes you out yes. of the moment and so on and um and that's kind of that can that's equally um counteractive to the work that that we do as well that if if you if you kind of suddenly have a have that experience of oh actually no that's not quite right and we shouldn't be talking about this or whatever then then obviously you might you know you might get that inkling you might steer people away from certain subjects or whatever but but really you need to go with them as much as you as you can you know yeah no i think that's a fascinating idea like joe i'm really you know, in the days of my youth, I used to do a lot of improvisation. I was quite good at that, but I failed as an actor because I could never remember my lines. Oh, well, <laughs> so, yeah. You know, it's a bit of bit of a necessity, really. But um, that that sense of, as you say, just just flowing with the the river. You know, whatever kind of metaphor you, if you whatever you encounter, waterfall or rocks, you never know what someone's going to to bring up, and. Even even down, you know, I, I like that sort of third person director. Um, you're sitting on your your shoulder. Actually, even even if you, I think this is why it's useful to think of your of ourselves just as one human being alongside another. Yeah. Because as soon as you bring uh, my role as a chaplain, this is who I am. This is who I'm. What I'm bringing. Actually, I don't think even that's helpful. You know, often it isn't. I mean, often people will want that, uh, I think. Um, you know, sometimes people get confused by the fact that I'm not religious and that I'm doing this work. I mean, I would, you know, I'm always on about my definitions of spirituality and so on. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you you need you need to be just present and in the yep. now. I talk to my to my theatrical students always about being in the now needing to be present absolutely and reacting in the moment because that's 
when you're a decent actor, let's face it. Mm. Um, not thinking about the line that you've got in a couple of seconds time or, or all that sort of stuff. So so that's really helpful to be in the now with be present, completely present with um, the person that you're talking to. And the other thing I talk about often in improvisation, um, which Sanford Meisner, a great American teacher from the last century, um, said, was that the scene is in the other person, he was always saying, that mm. that the other person will give you everything you need mm-hmm. for your scene. And that's yeah, fine. Yeah, and, and that's absolutely true of our work is that, you know, that we get everything we need from from the service user or patient that we're talking to. Yes. Yes. And how does that link? So you said earlier on um, about, you know, sometimes you talk to someone and you're dotting around in a conversation. You're here, then you're over there. You thought this was happening. Now that's happening. That sort of fluidity in reality that can happen with people who are in mental health contexts. Yeah. um, And something you have to go with requires a a step away from logic i often used to find yeah. you know you're yes. not trying to be logical you're not trying to understand how one bit fits with another bit mm-hmm. and that that sometimes requires a bit of self restraint to go with that i don't I know if you so. yeah that. i mean i i live uh, live so often in nonsense um that i don't really mind i mean <laughs> um I've just started with my latest cohort of students and I know that the next the next three weeks we won't be speaking English. We'll just be speaking gibberish because that's kind of a good freeing way of going, <laughs> you know, and that there's way less sense in that than there is in most of the people that I, or any of the people that I, I would talk to in my in my job, you know. And 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 so I'm happy with whatever I get. I mean, that as you know, like working in palliative care, as Dick does, that a lot of the time you don't speak to people at all. It's just about presence. Yes. Um, yes. And 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 that's fine too. And often with um, people in um, who are attached to a mental health unit or whatever, they then then presence is the important thing. And being part of the furniture, there's the that aspect of trust. Building up trust is incredibly important. And I would say one of the major differences. Between between mental health and acute work is that you know that there are people who I'm seeing who I've been seeing for three years you know um most weeks and I followed them from um one of our one of our acute units into a rehab unit and now into the community and it's important to note of course that some over 90 percent of the people of our service users are in the community and and one of the focuses that I'm really keen to to kind of readdress since COVID is to make sure that that we are working in the community as much as we're working on our wards and units mm. um, with with people who who are attached to one of our teams, um, either the adult community mental health team or the, um, the psychosis team or the, the, the crisis team or whatever, whichever one it is. And so I'm I'm continually on the um uh, uh, I guess you'd call it advertising the service to our to our community teams to make sure that they know that they can refer people to us and we we do loan working we do home visits um, we meet people in our in our hubs um, and and talk to them there and it, and you know you're dealing then with people who may be extremely lonely if they live on their own um, 
and their minds will work in the ways that they work if they don't have anybody to talk to to ground them in the reality that the rest of us um, experience mm. uh, you know that 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 suddenly you'll you'll turn up there and and have a conversation an extremely interesting conversation because you know we we talk we talk about spirituality we talk about worldview uh meaning and purpose as 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 with um acute chaplains uh but but there's such a huge wide range of, mm. of what that means to people you know um and and where it sits within their priorities and yeah, yeah. um uh sense of self so so one thing i think else... often 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 it's really important i mean that's 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 i mean you know we're, we're self-selecting in that way in that the, we get referrals for people who, for whom that for whom it is a very important part of their mm. world um mm. I mean, I, I'd love to get referrals for people who it wasn't so important for, but but obviously our teams, when someone says, uh, it's faith, it's belief, that's my that's what I want to talk about, mm. then they'll go, Oh, blimey, spiritual care, then let's let's mm. put a referral out. I'm wondering again, going back to your sort of acting analogy, which I find quite interesting. Um, so often people who are experiencing mental health, you know, in an extreme case, psychosis or or a dementia, where the distance from their self, their sense of who they are, there's a gap that opens up. You know, they may have insight into that. They know that they were someone different when they were well, or they yeah. feel that they are on a, a journey away from themselves or back towards themselves as they're mm. in recovery. Yeah. That sort of journey that you're helping people on in a mental health context, I think is is often quite unique and for me it often has a real sense of loss and grief associated with it mm. not feeling you know they may have relationships or jobs or things that have gone because of their changed mental health and how we help people in that journey back to themselves yeah yeah um and again just going back to the acting idea of analogy where where, where you sort of assume identities consciously mm. in acting there's not a choice when these things happen to people with mental health problems i'm just wondering if there's an interesting area to explore there around sense of identity and how we work with people about that well i mean i i'm i'm aware of how of course of how um roles and and identities bleed when playing a part and keeping those boundaries up is really important of course it is um you know you can't take a part home with you if you're playing a mass murderer or something um uh i actually did play um a pedophile at one point um mm. one show that i did and it was just really really important for me to go okay that's the show and i'm leaving now and i'm putting it behind me and i don't want you know because the horrendous thoughts that might that might come up you know so so i'm aware i'm aware of those issues of identity on a very tiny tiny scale as a as as a performer um but i don't uh, but but i'm i'm in i try and be in the moment with the person and and they will sometimes as you say tell me about their previous life and how awful it is that they no longer have it um you know whether whether their family has dissolved around them, whether they haven't been able to stay in touch or or whatever it might be and 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 how they as you say they are in mourning for that and and that element of that element of grief and bereavement for a life that they no longer can be part of can be a very important part and it's actually you know having having worked in a in a hospice and so on that um 
those those bereavements those griefs are the, are the main ones that we experience because of course as as part of our mental health trust if someone is actually going to die we send them to the local hospital and we don't have anything to do with them anymore um well i might go and visit them if they're one of my regular um people but but really the the, the acute trust will then take over their care and and deal with the the issues around bereavement for the family and so on uh, and unless it's someone that I have known and I've met the family, because obviously we we're here for carers as well as staff and service users, um, I won't I won't be involved in that process. Whereas obviously at, at Guys and Thomas's I was, and you know performing um, funerals, contract funerals, and so on as part of my my regular duties, but not here. I mean, with the only time that that we really get that with service users anyway obviously if that's a staff bereavement that's important and members of staff dying but um we do have we're a learning disabled trust so we have very long-term service users we um and sadly earlier this year um one of our service users who'd been with us since the mid 80s died and um and so dealing with that and dealing with the sense of loss with the staff who some of whom had been um, looking after him for you know 30 years and that that was a really in, important important work to do um as as was the detective work around what faith he might have been you know because he had no no living relatives and we and we eventually found someone in cyprus who knew that his family had been catholic so we were able to then organize a catholic funeral for him but but you know so so those those issues of, of of kind of literal bereavement when we think of people dying is is in the mental health system um we don't we don't come across those nearly as much uh, as as chaplains do in the in the acute system um, so you, that was a very actually... interesting that was a, an interesting shift of focus between the two posts sorry Steve. No, you, i was just going to say actually you have become a vicar really um oh thanks <laughs> no well <laughs> I, what i was thinking what are the joys uh i've never actually been a vicar it's one of those strange things mm. the, the way my career went but um i i did have three years when i was in training at a, at a church and there are moments when you actually perhaps are doing a baptism and yeah. a wedding and a funeral, all for the, the same family. And I began to really appreciate that sense of continuity. And just listening to you talk about being with families, um, attending, being with them through all the big sort of triumphs and disasters of, of life, all the griefs, the uh, the high points. You know, and in, and in that case that you were just talking about, best part of, well, not you personally, but 40 years. Mm -hmm. And you, you represent that as well, that institution that's been caring for them for 40 years. You know, I, I could almost hear many a vicar <laughs> saying those same words, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, and it's a uh, real gift that you've it, got there. It, it is. I mean, and as I, say, I mean, having uh, obviously worked working in prison, you know, people say, "What's it like? What's the difference between mental health and and acute work?" And and it's and it kind of for me, it sits halfway between prison work and and acute work in that the, the relationships and the trust that you need to build up, you have to become part of the furniture in your units and with your team so that they trust you, though they'll talk to you. Um, and and that's that's the important thing. Being present is just is so crucial, which is which is why COVID was so difficult, you know, apart from anything else. 
Um, but but you know the work that we do with people with working alongside therapists, doctors, and so on. Um, where uh, you know I, I work with people who um, you know people who do CBT therapy, and those practitioners will often say to me, "Can you can you talk to this person?" And it might be, for example, that they're a Christian who hears voices, and so. And so the therapist will be talking to them about how loud the voices are and if they've got the quietened down this week and so on. Whereas I'll be talking to them about, you know, let's look at this from within the context of your faith. Mm. And and what defences do you have if you're a Christian against the voices in, in your mind? And we talk mm. about we talk about the nature of 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 voices and whether they're demonic and the devil being the father of lies and all those sorts of and all those sorts of things and the idea of the idea of the the goodness and faith that they might have in in their god which will protect them or give them will hedge them around and 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 allow them to be protected from from the predations of these voices and so on so i try and work you know i, I try and do as much homework as i can and work from within uh, within their their worldview mm, you know yeah. some, well, sometimes it's aliens you know you know it's yeah. cool or whatever but but you know and 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 i and i try and honor what they're hearing and and who they are and how they can how they can deal with this mm. whereas obviously the therapists will be you know or the doctors will be medicating so maybe they don't hear them so much the therapists will be talking to them on a different level you know and so 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 we can all work together i hope from different perspectives to help help the person out you know I think I think that was the thing that I learned a lot about was that you work from their reality on that day mm. whatever that reality is and it yeah. might be illogical or it might be bizarre but what you can work with is how that reality is affecting their emotions how they are feeling experiencing that day it's not for me to judge if they're hearing no. voices or what the reality of those voices are what their persecution complex is or yeah what they're what they're fixated on or whatever mm. but i can talk to them about that oh that sounds very scary or that sounds like a really unsettling thing or it sounds like you don't you can't trust anyone you know those sort of emotional mm -hmm. responses to their reality as you mm. say we can come in there and have that conversation yeah, yeah, we can. I mean, I should also mention as well. Uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I'm I'm neurodivergent. I'm autistic, mm -hmm. and and so and I find I find that I don't know really useful in a way. I suppose you know it seems strange to say that, but but talking to other people who are neurodivergent and having that com commonality of experience with them is certainly a helpful thing in my life. Mm -hmm. in, in yeah. my work. I th I think that's yeah. incredibly um, insightful. And that's why we need diverse people on chaplaincy teams, because we all bring different insights, whether it's, you know, an experience of, of uh, a particular faith or an experience of, of a disability or an experience of abuse or something in the past. It gives us all an extra dimension to add into the pot and yeah. a different way of talking together and explaining difference these these monocultural teams mm. are limited in how they can yeah. respond to people and how dynamic and how adaptive they can be because we're only as rich as the people within our teams well that's true i mean and and i spent most of my life being being fantastic a fantastically majority minded you know um 
I I had no concept of of minority life effectively. I mean, I I am I'm autistic, but I didn't know. I was very very late um, diagnosed, maybe kind of only only sort of eight years ago. Um, and so, as a as a white male, middle class, well educated, public school educated person, I I just thought that was the norm, like you it's do. Coasted, yeah. And and just and just being part of all those majorities, and I'm now incredibly aware of my privilege, because yeah. because I have and 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 that's I hope because of a personal journey, but it's also because finding out I'm neurodivergent and then being part of that minority, and also as as probably you found um, Joe you know not being religious and being in this world is puts you in a minority as well yeah. and that's that's a that's an interesting place to be too yeah. that yeah. that you do like to certain people not most people are very interested in and that's great but for some people you do have to kind of justify your existence yeah you're judged yeah, yeah. and and to and, be prejudged um, before people have even met you or talked to you on the basis of your beliefs or your diagnosis is a very limiting thing yeah, it is. It is. And, but, and, but equally, yeah. you know, just to, to say the obvious, you know, even if, if people are aware that I'm an Anglican priest, they can have expectations of me that are totally ridiculous in, in yeah. my head. They are if they, if they think, oh, it's a priest, they're going to be judgmental. They're going to tell me what to do. And, you know, from my perspective, that couldn't and shouldn't be further from the truth. And it's the same with autism. Uh, yeah, in that sense, we we have a label that, particularly over the last fifty years, has just grown and grown and developed, and now we have this idea of neurodiversity. Really, this part of me just feels that the whole human race would be better off if we just agreed we were all unique and different, and stopped putting labels. Well, yeah, that, on that, each that other. is a that is a play, that is yeah that is a massively privileged thing to say, though, Stig. That's coming from a huge place of privilege to say that, though. Mm. Would it not be possible, that, in a sense, to identify in everybody somewhere in some way that they are diverting away from what is considered normal? No. What is what really is no. normal? Really, no. No, I'm not. I think so there's sure. a very wide band of normal, and then also what happens is you have this intersectionality, which is a sort of like a buzzword at the moment isn't it where you have yeah. layers of difference that something owning have. your owning your privilege owning your majority is just as important as owning your minority yeah so, yeah I, I i do agree with that I definitely you know particularly working with a, a range of ethnic uh ethnically diverse members colleagues friends that there are aspects of my life in which i am very privileged but I'm also very conscious that there are aspects of my life in which I would say I was underprivileged because of my life experience, mm. you know. Um, and we, we can't judge we can't judge that on appearance. It's the other important exactly. thing, isn't it, Stig? And I've yeah. learned that so exactly. many times on the assumptions I've made that people are white, that people mm -hmm. are educated, that people are have a home. You know, you yeah, can make yeah. all sorts of assumptions that are blown out the water um, by uh, what they then tell you or disclose to you. So, you know, you can't assume anything about people by looking at them. Now, yeah. just I'd just like to talk, because I, obviously I can see with you, Josh, that humour bubbles under the surface a lot of the time. And I'm wondering 
how you find humor helpful to your role oh extremely i would say um you know you need to know you, you need to be careful you can't just make jokes willy-nilly um and again it's it's about getting to know people and making sure that um they know where you're coming from but if you can find a place of humor with with people it's just extremely helpful for diffusing situations or or whatever and um i suppose you know having come to this work very late i think um the persona of the bumbling amateur is very helpful to me really <laughs> um in the in the i just want to know what's going on you know i just want to find out stuff and i don't know and and i'm and i am in a position of ignorance i you know i am a complete and absolute beginner with any individual that i meet and so yes. and so finding and so finding out who they are and what what makes them tick is important and then finding out what makes them laugh is something that I will also try to do in my first few meetings with them to find out a way in which we can we can do that. And it's you know some people some people just won't laugh, particularly in the in the mental health setting. There will there will be people who who are unable to do that. They're so they're so sad and depressed that mm. that it isn't possible. But then but then you know with there that, that when there's one service user who I remember I didn't I didn't. Speak speak to really very much for the first three months that i i met them i was told by somebody on the unit that oh this person he just he's just in his room and there's nothing that he that we can do and so i just used to go and when i was visiting that you know go and sit sit with him for five ten minutes mm. and and say i was here and then he'd be like well i don't really want to talk and you know and and so then one week he was fine one week he was, you know, he'd come out of that. Sadly, he's gone back into it. I mean, it's obviously this, these things can be cyclical. But when I met him, when he was in the in the living room, sitting there watching the TV, um, we had a really we had a good joke because mm. because he felt that he knew me and he did say thank you so much for sitting with me. I told you to go away most times, but I was re actually really glad that yeah. he was still there. He did tell me to go away. Usually, I just went. I'm, I'd say okay fine I'm off then but um but you know th those sorts of moments he felt easy around me and we we then started a quite humorous relationship while he was yeah. you know out of his depression depression mm -hmm. stage yeah. um, I loved what you said there about you you go in with this completely open agenda and the way you frame it is you say look I'm I don't know anything fill me in I think that's such a contrast to how people are approached by other clinical staff who have a treatment plan, a drug regime. I mean, hugely skilled people. I'm not not uh, discounting their skills at all, but they always have that agenda yeah. in the back of their head. They know what their actions do to fit into a treatment plan. Well, well, yeah, and 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 we're in we're we're kind of neutral, you know. Mm. we don't have any axe to grind and that's really important like people people will say to me 
can you put this on my notes, please? <laughs> they will tell yeah. me stuff and they will say, can you put that on my notes? Because I don't know that it's there. And they may say, well, I haven't told anybody else, which usually they have actually. But, but you know, they're, they're, and so of course I will. I'll say, you know, they've asked me to say that blah, 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 when I get on the notation system. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and as I say, it's, it's an element of being neutral, being Switzerland, being the fire service in Northern Ireland and the troubles, you know, all those, all those people who were just seen as, well, we can talk to them because they don't have any particular, you know, they're just neutral. They don't have any access to grind. Mm. Well, thank you uh, for the laughter. Thank you for the silence. I think there are two wonderful phrases all chaplains mm. yearn to hear. It wouldn't make much of a podcast if we focus too much on one over the other, but <laughs> Uh, maybe we ought to have a 30 minute podcast of silence but uh, I think that's probably a really good moment to uh, to to wind up actually thank you ever so much um, certainly thank you for everything that you, you've given us uh, I, I don't know yeah you know the this idea of uh, bringing our acting and improvisational and creative skills to bear on who we are what we do um, Joe I don't know if you have anything no, I find that really interesting. What I love about these podcasts is we set off, we don't know where we're going. And, yeah. you know, we didn't know what we were going to talk about there, but I think there were some really refreshing ideas. Some this, this perspective you get from coming to this work late with all your life experience and then with the fresh eyes. I think, it, you know, people who come to it with that in that way have so much to offer to teams. And I'm so glad, Josh, that there were people who let you in. Well, and thank, you. The punt thank on you. you. Yeah, yeah, no, I should, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point people to the recent chaplaincy guidelines um, yeah. before I finish. And, you know, we all, we all read them with interest. And um, I, I'm not going to say anything other than it's, it's interesting to note that of those 85 or however many pages there were, only one and a half of them were about mental health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah very true and it's so important because it's a and e is full of people who have mental health issues every ward you go on to you start talking to someone and you realize there's other layers of um ill health going on there so it's right across the piece not just the mental health trust but right across the piece in our work and yeah so thanks for pointing that out and the neglect of that area well, that's a very poignant thought to end this episode with. Thank you ever so much, Josh. This has been a really insightful episode. Uh, I'm sure everyone will have enjoyed it. So do uh, get in touch with us, uh, to all our listeners. Um, if you've got any other questions for Josh or Joe and I, or you have any ideas that you'd like to share with us, do get in touch. Openupchap at gmail.com. So until the next time, thank you very much for listening. It's goodbye from us. Bye. 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 Bye.